Open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6 for scripture reading this morning. As we use that as a means to prepare ourselves for the message itself. One of the reasons we sang a couple of songs this morning is because, as you know, Joshua chapter 6 is the destruction of Jericho. Nothing is impossible when you put your trust in God. It was interesting when I prepare for messages, I come across sometimes some humorous stories in reference to the destruction of the wall of Jericho. A new minister was asked to teach a boys' class in the absence of the regular teacher. He decided to see what they knew, so he asked who knocked down the walls of Jericho. All the boys denied having done it, and the preacher was appalled by their ignorance. At the next deacon's meeting, he told about the experience. Not one of them knows who knocked down the walls of Jericho, he lamented. The group was silent until finally one seasoned veteran of disputes spoke up. Preacher, this appears to be bothering you a lot, but I've known all those boys since they were born, and they're good boys. If they said they didn't know, I believe them. Let's just take some money out of the repair and maintenance fund, fix the walls, and let it go at that. Anyway, Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho, Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. I'll probably cover this again, but I want to tell you a little bit about Jericho. Jericho wasn't as big as we all think. It's only nine acres. The city, as they excavated the, the land and got down to Jericho, it's only nine acres. It was not a big area. It probably took the children of Israel uh, estimated a half hour maybe to march around the city itself. But it was a stronghold. It was like the gateway to, to Canaan. To go around Jericho was to have to watch your back the rest of the time you're con- trying to conquer in Canaan. So Jericho was a key city for them entering into Canaan itself. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war, You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Now, uh, I don't know how much reading you've done in reference to those who comment about miracles like this that happen in the Old Testament, but there is a common belief floating around out there that this is a Hebrew legend. And somehow through that legend, it made it into their storytelling, and then it became part of Scripture. I can't explain this miracle but this is not a Hebrew legend any more than the, than the flood was. This event truly happened. In fact, in their excavation, as they look at the walls themselves, they didn't fall in or fall out, they fell down flat. Well, that's, you can't explain that. And uh, one, uh, I read one article where it said, um, Congratulations, the Bible has verified what science has now found. When it should have said, Congratulations, science has now found what the Bible always said. This was a case. This is a case in point here. Now verse 7. 
or six, I'm sorry. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called a priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed, march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So it was, when Joshua had spoken to the people, that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout! Then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. Uh, can you imagine being on the wall in Jericho? Now, maybe the first day you thought, that's just a little weird. The second day you might think, I can't believe they did that twice in a row. But by the time you got to the fourth, fifth, sixth day, you're going like, this is way, way, way out of my, my pay grade. I can't figure this one out at all. And uh, it, it was an eerie thing, just the horns blowing, no talking, no sound except the horns blowing. And uh, like I said, it probably took about 30 minutes to go around. You yourself know how annoying it is when your child had a drum and kept beating it. Uh, but this was, they were blowing the horns as they went around the city. So verse 12. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew with the trumpets. The armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. The second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, about the dawning of the day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. In that, in that, on that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua had, had the people shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Uh, now they were already blowing the trumpets, uh, the, it, the suggestion is here is that there was a, a rather long blast on the trumpets, which was the signal to the people to shout on the seventh time they went around the city. Verse 17. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the cursed things and make the camp of the Lord Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into this treasure of the Lord. Uh, one of the things you want to keep in mind, the reason the ark was taken there in Marshall City was a symbolic of the fact God was surrounding Jericho. Uh, you've heard the expression, this was a God thing. This was a God thing. Okay, this is only something that God could do. He was surrounding the city, using the children of Israel as instruments for his, his uh, majesty and power to be uh, demonstrated. So the people shouted, verse 20, when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the shout of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the well, wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. 
And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, donkey with the edge of the sword. I'm going to talk about this later, but in case I forget, I'll mention it now. One of the questions that is often asked, how can God, a God of love, be so hateful? How can he possibly be so destructive of man, woman, child, uh, oxen of the city as he was? God is love. That's a true statement. But one of the things that is often neglected is the fact that God is also holy. I believe that his overall attribute is his holiness. And he cannot stand sin. That's why you and I, without Christ, cannot enter into the presence of God. This uh, absence of God or absence of Christ that many people refuse to believe in. And uh, God's holiness demands righteousness. And uh, in Genesis chapter 18, when God told Abraham, by the way, Abraham, I'm going to give you that land. I'm going to give you Canaan. And he said, but not yet. Because the cup of the Amorites is not full. Well, the Amorites is another name for the Canaanites. And their cup of, their cup of evil was not full. In other words, there still was time for them to turn. Rahab is an example of one of them who turned. So it's not that they didn't have opportunity. It's not that they couldn't believe because Rahab certainly is an example of that. But their cup, when their cup was full, God took them into the land, and yes, they were destroyed. Uh, again, I'll point this out later. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. This is a great story, isn't it? Let's see, down to verse 22. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot her father's, in her, her father's household and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom, God, whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set it set up its gates. So the Lord is with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. May the Lord continue to add his blessings to the word. Everyone has faith in something. Everyone here has faith in something. You may have faith in your religion. You may have faith in yourself. You may have faith that evolution is true. You may have faith in good deeds. Even an atheist has faith in their own reason. Everyone has faith of some kind. But only faith that works for time and eternity is a faith that God recognizes. First of all, there's understanding faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, understanding faith. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word word of God. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. By faith, 
we believe Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. We accept that by faith. Faith helps us understand. There's faith, there's saving faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's saving faith. And there's also working faith in James 2.20. Faith without works is dead. In other words, you demonstrate your faith by your works. So there's understanding faith, there's saving faith, and there's working faith. Now, works can't save you, but works certainly demonstrate your faith, demonstrate your salvation experience. Martin Luther said it this way, Faith sees the invisible. Faith believes the incredible. Faith receives the impossible. That's what he described faith. One pastor tried to demonstrate the difference between faith and fact. He said, the fact is, you're sitting out there in a pew. The fact is, I'm up here behind the pulpit. But faith... I believe that you are listening to what I'm saying. I believe that. That's faith. Faith sees the invisible, believes the incredible, receives the impossible. And this is, we're going to see that demonstrated here in, of course, Genesis chapter 6. First of all, the obstacle of faith, verse 1 through 5. The most credible source that I could find was Answers in Genesis with Ken Ham. They, they not only have been there, but they've done the research themselves on the excavation of Jericho. Jericho had two walls. Your first wall, as you, actually you can see at the bottom there, that's, uh, it's a little blurry, but that's a picture of priests who are at the bottom of the wall. There was the retaining wall. You're, you're familiar with retaining walls. Okay, there was a retention wall. And uh, that, that wall itself was about 15 feet high. And then, uh, and, and then there was an embankment, okay? But on top, of, on top of the retaining wall was another wall, brick and mortar basically, about 6 feet in width and about 22 feet high. So if you're standing down there where the priests were and you're looking up towards the top, you're looking someplace between 37 to 40 feet. That's just the outside wall. Well, then there's this embankment that goes up to the second wall. The second wall, uh, again, six feet thick, and that was about seven feet high. So even if you got by the first wall, you still had to get through the second wall. This is about nine acres. They estimate about 200 people per acre, so there's about 1,800 people in the city. We always think that Jericho is this huge monstrosity of a metropolitan area, but it's not. It wasn't that big of a city. But you, when Israel moved into the area, you had a lot of people who lived around the city. They actually came into the city at that time, so it could have doubled or tripled. And the... Inside wall and outside wall, you have this embankment area. There were houses built there. This is probably where Rahab had built her house on the outside, inside the outside wall and outside the inside wall. Does that make sense? And uh, this is probably where Rahab built her house. And, and because the spies were let down by a cord 
to get outside the wall. So she, her house was probably here. So there was buildings uh, where you see the green, the embankment there. There was buildings actually within that area uh, there of, of uh, uh, Jericho. They had already passed one test. They had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. They certainly had seen the demonstration of God's power already. Now they faced another obstacle, Jericho. Uh, the, maybe they didn't, maybe they missed walking across Jordan on dry ground. They didn't get it. But I can tell you right now, when they saw Jericho fall flat, they got it. And this is often how God leads us. He leads us a step at a time. He leads us a test at a time. Even as it says there in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted or tried or, or tested beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, the test, the trial, will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He leads us a step at a time. He leads us a, st- a test at a time because he's not going to give us more than we can bear. And there are times you're going to come up to, to the test, that trial, and that temptation to say, I don't know if I can bear this anymore. Well, if you know Christ as your Savior, you have a personal relationship with God. His promise to you is he will not test you. He will not try you. He will not tempt you beyond what you're able to bear even though you don't think you can. You can. That's his promise. What stronghold, what test, what trial, what temptation are you facing today? Selfishness, pride, worry, control, relationships, financial burdens. Maybe it's a besetting sin. If others knew, they would be shocked what it is you're struggling with. No test, no trial, no temptation you're facing is greater than you can face. He will always provide a way of escape. That's his promise. And so we see that demonstrated, obviously, here in chapter 6, as Jericho falls down flat. The second thing I want you to see is the obedience of faith. Uh, you think of the, the military strategy. Uh, six days, uh, march around the city in silence, horns blowing. Uh, seventh day, same, only seven times, horns blowing, and then the loud shout. Uh, what would you think? I mean, let's put it this way. There's no record in Joshua 6 that anybody raised their hand and said, I have a question, Joshua. What are you talking about? You've got to be kidding me. No, they, they embraced this in faith. And they obediently did exactly what the directions that Joshua had given them that he'd received from the Lord. Just four things I want you to notice. I'll, I'll call them the marching orders. First of all, they marched defenselessly. Now, they apparently had weapons, but they were not a trained force. If Jericho had put up any resistance and marched out on them, they would have lost many lives, except by the grace of God, who would have intervened probably on their behalf. But they marched defenselessly. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What shall we say to all these things? 
If God be for us, who can be against us? 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. To all appearance, we are nothing. But when we rest upon his promises, we can accomplish great things. Because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. When I accepted Christ as my personal Savior, the Spirit of God dwelt and dwells within me. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Does that mean I will not be tested? Absolutely you're going to be tested. Will it be not be tried? You are going to be tried. Does that mean I won't be tempted? You are going to be tempted. But remember this. Greater is he. This is the promises of Scripture. He that's in you than he that's in the world. And if God is for us, and he is, who can stand against us? Not Jericho. They marched around the city patiently. Six times, once each day. Romans, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, or 1 and, 1 and 2 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. They marched around it patiently. Those behind obviously had a clear view of the ark. Those in front of didn't necessarily see the ark unless they maybe turned a corner and saw it out of the corner of their eye. But looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We, we get our eyes on all kinds of things. In fact, we may be watching Jericho and miss the whole impact of the fact that God was surrounding Jericho with the presence of the ark itself. They marched defenselessly. They marched patiently. Hebrews 12.1 this is taken out of our daily bread from April 8th, tells us to run with endurance the race set before us. George Matheson wrote, We commonly associate patience with lying down. We think of it as the angel that guards the couch of the invalid. Yet there is a patience that I believe to be harder, the patience that can run to lie down in the time of, a, of, of grief, to be quiet under the stroke, adverse torture, implies a great strength. But I know of something that implies a strength greater still. It is the power to work under stress, to have a great weight at your heart and still run, to have a deep anguish in your spirit and to still perform the daily tasks. It is Christ-like thing. The hardest thing is that most of us are called to exercise our patience, not in the sickbed, but in the street. To wait is hard. To do it with good courage is harder. They marched defenselessly. They marched patiently. They marched silently. Isaiah 30, verse 15 says, Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. I always think, when I think of, the, of silently, of Elijah when he fled from uh, Jezebel. As he went down the mountain and he fled across the country and God provided for him and he finally got to the mountain and he basically said, God, speak to me. And there was a whirlwind, like a tornado. There was a thunderstorm. There was a crashing and wind. And God wasn't there in them. And God wasn't in the wind and the storms. And then there was a still, small voice. You know, we're not listening. We want to see the wind. We want to see the storm. But we're not listening. God is speaking. Speak to us from His Word. He speaks to us in, in many things that we don't even recognize to see how he provides for us. I always think of his patience with me. It's extraordinary. 
But we're not looking for God. We're not listening for God. He's speaking. They marched around silently. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28. Even a fool is thought to be wise if he keeps silent. And the last one, they marched around the city expectantly. When you pray, are you watching to see what the next thing God does? Or you just pray and kind of leave it there on the table? See, they marched expectantly. They expected God to do something. They expected God to keep his word. They expected the walls to fall down flat. They marched expectantly. God said the walls would fall down flat. They did. Verse 20 says, So the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. David and Goliath reminds us a little bit of that story. You know, David's brothers, the soldiers, they saw a great giant of a man, too big to defeat. But David saw a giant of a man too big to miss. He expected God to intervene. He expected God to make a difference. They marched marched around the wall expectantly. The last thing I want you to see is overcoming by faith. There in verses 22 to 25. Overcoming by faith. There's faith that conquers. And there's faith that converts. Let me look at, first of all, faith that conquers. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. And verse 31. What's, what's interesting about these two verses is in Joshua chapter 6, we are told that Rahab was rescued because she hid the two men. But Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a further insight to this whole thing. And it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down flat after they were encircled for seven days. Verse 31, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. She did not perish with those who did not believe. Why? Faith. She had saving faith. Understanding faith. And she actually demonstrated her faith, her working faith. Rahab had faith. It's faith that conquers, faces the uncertain. The walls of Jericho. Already passed at one test, they witnessed the Jordan, now their formidable obstacle was Jericho itself. God leads us a step at a time, a test at a time. They witnessed the unbelievable. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down, flat. This is only something that God could do. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 29 says, Behold, I am the Lord God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not, there's there's nothing too hard for you. But sometimes we need to be reminded of that. There's nothing too hard for God. Faith that conquers, witnesses the unbelievable, faces the uncertain, and does the unconventional. After they walked, they encircled the walls seven days, it fell down flat, just like God said it would. They witnessed the unconventional. In fact, in some ways you could say it was, you just cannot explain this. You had to see it. You had to be there. Or, in our case, we believe the Word of God is true as it is written, and I have faith that it is true, the way it is written. 
Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, This is a way that seems right to man, but the end is the way of death. Isaiah 55, verse 9 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. They witnessed the unconventional. Faith that conquers. Now I want you to see faith that converts, talking about specifically Rahab. In chapter 2, you'd have to go back to Joshua chapter 2. This is just actually kind of a review, actually. You can faith that converts. There's a confession of faith in, Romans, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. And as soon as we heard these things, the Red Sea and destruction of the kings on the east of Jordan, our hearts melted. Now remember, this is 40 years ago, 40 years ago that this took place. They had heard about this. Our hearts melted within us, and we didn't, neither did those remain, remain courage in any of us because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and earth beneath. That's her confession of faith. Not conventional. We think normally of a confession of faith. There is a, we think of a point in time in which I prayed and asked Christ to save him from my sin. I Rely on a possible of Scripture, in my case, Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not conventional. But Apostle Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, and he was struck blind. Is that a conventional way to get saved? If that's the only way to get saved, then all of us are lost, because none of us have been struck blind yet. So there's no single element in which there's a certain way to get saved, but there is one element that always stays the same. You must have faith. And she confessed her faith. We have people I know in our sanctuary this morning, they got saved listening to a Billy Graham crusade on TV. We have others in our congregation who have been saved reading Purpose Driven Life. That's not conventional. Are they not saved? They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, yes. They are saved. They do know Christ. Her confession of faith, the confirmation of her faith is found in chapter 2, verse 21. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. Uh, Their words were that they would spare her and spare her house. So be it. She sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. That's the confirmation of her faith. Now, uh, let let me add this. There are types and shadows in the Old Testament. For instance, I've mentioned that before. When we think of the mercy seat, we think of the altar. As the serpent of the brass serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That was a type, shadow of Christ. Some take the scarlet cord and try to make that the blood of Christ. my, My personal feeling is that's a stretch. What if it had been a green cord? It was just, I believe they they mentioned something that was common for them to identify easily. It's easily to see a red cord. Does that represent the blood of Christ? I don't know if it does or not. All I know is this, they knew which house was hers. Okay? So I I don't, you know, I've heard messages on that. Maybe you have too, and that's okay. I just, I just, I don't see it. Doesn't mean it's not there. I just don't see it that way. But I see it as a means to identify her house was that red cord. Thirdly, the consequences of her faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. 
And then, as we look in chapter 6, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house. There's no such thing, think about this for a minute, there's no such thing as a correspondence course for swimming. You can't take a correspondence course for swimming. You have to have a pool. You have to get in water someplace, somehow. There's no correspondence course for faith. Nobody can do this for you. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. I couldn't do it for my children. I can't do it for my grandchildren. There's no correspondence course for faith. You have to believe. Rahab believed. And so we see later in Matthew chapter 1, we're looking at the genealogy of Christ. Guess who's in that genealogy? Rahab the harlot is in that genealogy leading up to Christ. Three, three lessons. I just want to conclude with this. I know, I know you've been here but a long time, but this, we're almost done. Lesson one. God's judgment always happens in God's time. Remember in Genesis chapter 15 when he talked to Abraham and said, this is the land I promised you, but the cup of the Amorites is not yet full. God's judgment always happens in God's time. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, your personal Savior, and you've been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, you need to know that God's judgment happens in his time. Joshua was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. You know how many people were saved from the flood? Eight. Just his household. Were there opportunities to also be part of the ark? Yes, but God's judgment happens in God's time. In fact, as we read there, the Genesis account of the flood, it says God shut the door. They marched in, he shut the door, he sealed it, and he made sure it was tight. God's judgment happens in God's time. Second lesson. God's judgment always happens God's way. God's judgment always happens God's way. Jericho was the only city whose walls fell down flat. Couldn't he conquer every city that way? Yes, he could. But it wasn't his way. Only Jericho suffered that consequences. Sodom and Gomorrah, as you remember back in the days of Abraham, were destroyed by fire. We, they're the only cities we know of, at least in the book of Genesis, that God sent down fire and destroyed them. God's judgment always happens God's way. We do not know when the judgment will take place, but we do know this, it will. Lastly, third lesson, God's judgment is always mingled with mercy. God's judgment is always mingled with mercy. Rahab, a harlot, she was spared physical and spiritually because of her faith. She didn't have a praying mother. She never read a gospel track. She never came across a Gideon Bible. She never listened to Christian radio or saw a televangelist. Yet, she reached out in faith and became an ancestor of Christ. I'm not trying to scare you out of hell. 
but I wouldn't mind scaring you into heaven. Judgment is coming. When your cup is full, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, your cup may be soon to be filled, or maybe it's already full, and it's just a matter of time. But like Rahab, you need to put your faith and trust in Christ. His judgment is always mingled with mercy. But it is coming, and it is final. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for the time we can spend in your word. Incredible lessons, lessons that we can learn here from the experience that they had with Jericho. Not only lessons in faith, but also lessons in mercy as well as judgment. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Ken, I'd like someone to show me from the word of God how I can be saved. Is there anyone like that? We will not embarrass you. You can come and speak to me after the service. I'll take you, and if it's a lady with a lady, a man with a man, and sit down and show you from the word of God how you can be saved. Is there anyone like that? Secondly, you say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me. I'm going through some real trials right now. Pray for me to extend and lift up my faith. Others? Yes? Yes. Father, I thank you, God. Thank you that you're at work, even though often we're not watching. Oh God, I pray that you help us to march expectingly, expectantly and patiently and silently, listening to you and looking for you. To have that simple faith that even Rahab expressed. I pray, Lord, that our lives be changed and we be more and more conformed the image of your son. In Jesus' name we pray.